I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to IntroVets Podcast. Hello. Today, we have an extra special guest for you. <laughs> Dr. Michelle Gaspar is joining us. Dr. Gaspar received her veterinary degree from the University of Wisconsin, and she went on to become a diplomat of the American Board of Veterinary Practitioners with a feline specialty. Dr. Gaspar serves as a longtime consultant for Venn Feline Internal Medicine. She's helped me with a ton of cases over the years. She's also active in the Vets for Vets program through the Venn Foundation that provides counseling uh, services and professional development for veterinarians and veterinary students. And we've talked about that on the podcast a lot before. In 2012, Dr. Gaspar decided to go back to school and she got her master's degree in pastoral counseling. She's also completed a certificate in adult psychoanalytic psychotherapy. And currently, she's an advanced candidate in psychoanalysis with the Chicago Center for Psychoanalysis. Dr. Gaspar wears three hats. She consults for VIN in the feline internal medicine folder. She works one-on-one -on -one with veterinarians and students through the Vets for Vets program. And she sees private psychotherapy clients through her mental health practice, and her practice is geared toward healthcare providers. Dr. Gaspar, welcome to the podcast. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to have you on the podcast. You're like one of my personal heroes, and that's not hyperbole. I'm like being 100% serious. When I first was, you know, on VIN and reading some of your posts, and I found out that you had decided to go back to school and now you're a counselor, I can remember like even early in my career thinking like, wow wow, that really sounds like something I want to do. And then I kind of always had that in the back of my mind. And then when I got to a point in my life where it sort of became suddenly possible and maybe even necessary for me to do that, I contacted you and you were like, yeah, call me. <laughs> and you spent an hour on the phone with me talking about stuff. And I just really appreciate it. Well, it was easy to do. Thank you so much. Like that, this is really like, I feel a little bit... um starstruck you know in a way. <laughs> i mean in a way you know a little bit <laughs> and i can't even like if you went back through the feline internal medicine folder and looked at all of my like complicated cases over the past forever you know since you joined vin i'm pretty sure you would see the just like multiple a year that you have held my hand through so like on both sides like seriously it's just been a privilege it really is it's a privilege well, so I am so interested in your career journey, in what made you originally choose veterinary medicine, what made you transition to counseling and incorporate that into your career. So veterinary medicine is actually my second career. Oh. Uh, my undergraduate degree is in journalism from the oh, Medill yeah. School of Journalism at Northwestern University. I worked as a reporter for the Chicago Tribune for a number of years, and um, then did public relations for a variety of nonprofits and corporate entities. And my foray into veterinary medicine uh, was kind of picking up a thread that had been lifelong. Um, I always enjoyed animals. Um, some of my earliest recollections are of going to uh, the farm of an aunt and uncle of mine outside of Grand Rapids, Michigan, and enjoying the kittens and the horses and the cows and the sheep and the goats and the pigs and the dogs, all of them. And I think, you know, I, there's something to be said for not getting our dream career right off the bat. I was, I was incredibly fortunate. Um, I got uh, hired by the Chicago Tribune uh, very shortly after graduation from um, Northwestern. And my husband and I uh, married, and we started um, getting little finches. And our bird doctor turned out to be Richard Nye. And uh, Dr. Nye, he himself has a career that twists and turns. He was a civil engineering major at UC Davis. He preached for Chicago Cubs well. and then went to veterinary <laughs> school. 
And uh, I would bring these these finches to Dr. Nye, and one day he said, you know, I think what I'm doing is much more interesting to you than what you're doing. And uh, I took two things away, you know, be careful what you tell anyone, right? Because it's going to plant a seed. Fortunately, right. <laughs> fortunately, I think I was at a point where I was ready for a transition. My husband was incredibly supportive. As a matter of fact, you know, all those late night conversations about, I don't know if I could do this, um, were always met with, well, at the end of life, do you want to say that you tried it and you didn't get it or that you never tried it and you wished you had? And, and that's what kept me going. I will fully admit uh, I hadn't had a science course since junior year of high school, so did a two-and-a-half-year pre-med program, got in, attended veterinary school at the University of Wisconsin, had my own feline exclusive practice after doing emergency critical care for about two years, and um, started working with a group that was actually the antecedent for the Vets for Vets program at VIN. Um, it was working with what was called at the time troubled colleagues. And in my workings in the feline internal medicine folder in VIN, a lot of times I would just pick up the phone and call someone if I thought that they were really struggling with the case or I thought that the patient was um, very seriously ill and uh, we had to move quickly, I would pick up the phone. And in the course of conversations, with a number of colleagues, I was struck by the amount of depression and anxiety and burnout I was hearing. And one day just mentioned it to Paul Pyan, who is the co-founder of VIN, and he was very supportive of me going forward. And um, there are a number of paths one can take uh, to be a mental health provider. I looked at a number of opportunities in Chicago. And I was always interested in more um, existential issues, more issues with, with self, with individuation, our own paths, if you will. And the pastoral counseling program at Loyola uh, of Chicago really kind of checked all the boxes. So that is the story, a truncated version, but that's all the high points. I am so excited about the fact that you were a journalist. That is so cool to me, too. Did, what types of stories did you cover primarily? So I was a general assignment reporter, also urban affairs. Um, uh -huh. So at the time that I was at the Tribune, there was a lot of work being done in housing, um, fair employment, affirmative action. But the one wonderful thing about general assignment reporting is no day is really like the next or the previous one. There's always something, there's always something new. And I was always interested in people's stories. Yeah. So that has served me well, not only in reading the stories that are presented of patients uh, in feline internal medicine on VIN, but of course, as a psychotherapist, that's what we listen to. We listen to people's stories. And so that has been a, a very consistent thread. Why do you feel a focus on mental health is particularly important for veterinary professionals? Well, I think good mental health is essential for all of us. But particularly anyone who finds themselves in a caring profession, and I cast the net very, very wide on caring professions. Of course, veterinarians are included, physicians, nurses, anyone who works at a hospital, teachers, social workers, pastors, clergy, anyone whose, whose professional life dovetails with another, particularly when the other's life is particularly at a stressful point, at a point of grieving, mourning, we, we need to know ourselves. And, and that's ultimately what psychotherapy is. It's, it's, learning, it's learning about ourselves. It's learning why we are the people we are, right? So I am less interested in, you know, the advice, the support, the change your, you know, change your thoughts and you'll change your behavior. Um, I'm not CBT oriented. I think that our lives, particularly childhood and adolescence, and our relationships with people, parents, teachers, mentors, coaches, siblings, extended family, they all make us the people we are. And if we, if we don't understand where we came from, if we don't look backward, I don't think we can live forward. So, you know, I think, I think that mental health of knowing ourselves is critically important 
particularly when we, you know, when we touch people's lives, oftentimes at very, very difficult places. What do you see as the biggest barriers to wellness in the veterinary field? The biggest barrier, I believe, is the reluctance to engage with psychotherapy. I think that veterinarians are fixers. We want to solve problems. Many times we want to have a magic bullet because we think erroneously or not that we have a magic bullet for a particular patient. You know, what's the drug? What's the dose? And there's, there's also a reluctance um, on the part of many veterinarians I, I speak with that they feel that they could only engage with the therapist who is a veterinarian. And I really push back on that because a good psychotherapist doesn't need to know about the particular stressors of anyone's profession. For example, I see lawyers. I don't know anything about writing briefs. I don't know anything about going to court, but I can I can understand anxiety. I can understand depression. I can understand wanting to do the best and feeling that we haven't. I can understand feeling that external forces are working against us. And so a good therapist will have empathy. And the, the fact of the matter is there are very few of us who are veterinarians and practicing psychotherapists. And so if we're waiting for that perfect somebody to come along, um, I think we can suffer needlessly. You mentioned the idea of, um, you know, veterinarians sort of feeling like that they should be able to find a magic bullet to to fix every problem that they have with a patient. I definitely have run into that. Uh, sometimes I feel that way. You know, why, I should just be able to handle any sort of problem, you know. What other attitudes, maybe traditions or paradigms in veterinary medicine do you feel like are sort of unhelpful when it comes to maintaining wellness? I, I think the problem that many veterinarians have is they don't recognize the triad that we're in. You know, we're in a triadic medicine. And by that, I mean, there is the clinician, there's the patient, and there's the client. And I think many veterinarians get hung up on the dyad between themselves and the patient and, mm -hmm. and realize that that third, that third leg of the triangle, the third piece of the triangle, the client, is ultimately the one who has control. You know, we can only do what time and resources allow. And many times I think we feel that, you know, we're somehow the reason why a treatment didn't go forward, a diagnosis wasn't made. But I think we increasingly have to see that we are in a collaborative environment. It's, it's very, very different than on the human side of the one medicine aisle, where um, with, with few specialty exceptions, a clinician, a physician is, is dealing you know, they're dealing directly with a patient, you know, sometimes a patient's family, but not, but not usually the case. So I think not recognizing the triad is, is a, a critical misstep. I also think that we have somehow glamorized our uh, situation in the world. I think you know, many veterinarians have just um, latched on to this. Um, we're suffering, we're mentally unwell, we're depressed, we're anxious, we're stressed. It has actually, you know, been in the, in the mass media, general media. And, and I think we have, to, we have to start finding our own wellness. You know, um, if I had to go to a physician and I had to always wonder about whether he or she was feeling well, what I was doing to help their mental health. I, I don't know that I would find them to be particularly helpful to me. And so I, I think for some unknown reason, and I'm, I'm very curious about this, you know, how we latched on to, we're very, we're, you know, we're very challenged, we're depressed, we're anxious. And, and the worst that I hear, and the one that I am adamant about pushing back on, is that clients somehow cause a subset of veterinarians to choose suicide. And, and that is simply not true. So I think, you know, within the profession, we have to, we have to change our narrative. I'm so glad that you brought that up. JJ and I have actually talked about this 
issue on the podcast before, maybe not quite as directly as as how you just phrased it, but this idea of how do we get clients to act better so that we can feel better? But overall, it's very difficult to change the behavior of other people, right? Like, Well, absolutely. You could change your own behavior and your own response to things, but, you know, controlling how other people behave and respond is, I think, impossible. And then also when you factor in uh, the grief, the guilt, the shame that clients feel surrounding their ability to afford the care that we can provide and, you know, maybe not noticing a problem until it was pretty advanced. I think expecting clients to adhere to this ideal level of behavior all the time is is kind of a toxic idea. It's it's quite toxic. And you know, whenever whenever I have these types of conversations, I always start by saying, you know, that abuse is not to be tolerated. But absolutely. One of, you know, one of the offerings that I have on VIN every year is I facilitate an eight-week mindfulness meditation course, and then I facilitate a mindfulness retreat also once a year. And, you know, the skills of mindfulness are no substitute, you know, for, for psychotherapy, that particularly depth psychotherapy. But I think we need to understand that we cannot personalize encounters. And when I say this, I usually get pushback from from colleagues and they go well you know how you know how can you say that i i deal with it every day multiple times a day and you know my response to that was i've i've worked i've worked emergency critical care um albeit well before the pandemic which i think just you know blew everything wide open i had my own feline exclusive practice um i was a solo practitioner so it was up to me every day and when I first started out in mental health counseling, I worked um, in community mental health, where I dealt with people every day who were um, very aggressive, who had a tremendous amount of complex trauma, um, and I was often the recipient of what they were, what they were thinking and feeling. And if you if you sit there and you and you internalize everything, you you can't be helpful. You can't be helpful. And so it's more than good boundaries. I think it's understanding why we get triggered, why we're reactive. And, and as I said, that, that takes some, some internal work and, and it has to be work that we want to do that no one can do for us. Yeah. It's almost like, I, and I, when I say this, I'm not saying, oh, other people only. I'm talking about myself, too. For a long time, I had this weird martyr complex, for sure. Like I was thinking, I work so hard and I work these crazy hours and I don't get paid as much as I need to be to justify all of this. And, you know, anytime I would encounter some sort of a client difficulty, it would make me angry at them that they were like, I kind of viewed it as you're putting all these barriers up to me getting through my day. How dare you? You don't understand what my life is like. And um, and it it did take a long time for me to sort of think like, oh, <laughs> that's maybe not <laughs> the best way to think about things. I I do see that sort of playing out quite a bit. Yeah, it's you know it's helpful. It's helpful to lament. It is helpful to share stressors. But I think that there is a significant subset of our profession that goes down a vortex that is simply not helpful. As part of my training at Loyola, I was in pastoral services at two level one trauma hospitals. And I was not coming from any type of um, theological perspective. It was not a dogmatic program. Uh, It was connected to a Roman Catholic institution, but that's about as far as it went. And so I got to see and work firsthand with physicians at all levels of training and practice, many specialties, nurses, other chaplains. And, you know, to, to give care is a very demanding professional choice. You know, to, 
to say, and I think I think this is a this is a blind spot in veterinary medical education. You know, what does it mean to choose this profession? I think the you know the simplest, the most simplistic, and the you know the low hanging fruit is that oh, I get to help animals. And once again, that's just that's just a dyad. But they don't come to us alone. They come attached, and they come with people who carry their own burdens, you know, with them as well. And I'm I'm always interested in what happens in the clinical encounter, in in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis in particular. We talk about transference and countertransference. So these are unconscious things that we're not aware of. The transference being you know, how the client would see the provider, the countertransference would be how the provider sees um, the client. And, and this is going on continuously in a room. And if we're not aware, if we can't bring that unconscious uh, feeling to light, if we can't make it conscious, then, you know, we're in all kinds of, you know, enactments with clients. And they're in enactments with us too. So, you know, this is one of the this is one of the things that I, I'm trying to bring through to the profession because I think, you know, CBT is, is, a, is a fine modality, but it's akin to putting a tourniquet on a very, very significant bleeder many times. You've got to go in and you've got to get the bleeder. The tourniquet is not enough. And I also think, you know, uh, veterinarians, um, they're, they're very reluctant to, to pursue any kind of deep therapy. So they kind of prefer, you know, coaching. And coaching, coaching is, is wonderful, but it presumes a level of wellness in order to be coached. It's not a substitute yeah. for psychotherapy. And then, you know, yoga therapy and, you know, mindfulness. All those things are, are, are pretty much, you know, window dressings. Like just a Band-Aid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So what changes would you like to see in the veterinary field? I would I would really love to see a push towards uh, a normalization of access to therapy. I would very much like us to have a more a more depth oriented approach. You know, I think we have to we each have to take a look at what called us to the profession of veterinary medicine and and we all have stories. You know, no one no one wakes up one morning, comes, you know, or, or is birthed and says, oh, I'm going to be a veterinarian. There's usually some pivotal, some pivotal story. And, I, you know, I've listened to enough of these. It, it nearly has kind of a religious vocational call. You know, I, I knew I needed to do this. And, and that, bears, that bears remembering. I think a lot of times we lose sight of what that original call was about. And then over time, you know, we, we kind of rehash that call. We look at it again. It's, it's like any, you know, it's like a marital relationship. You know, the, the honeymoon phase is very, very different than 15, 35, you know, 50 years out. You keep looking at it. You keep using your experiences to, to make it, you know, lively again. And this is why I think, you know, going down that vortex of it's so terrible, we're just so overburdened, people are so mean to us, they're so mean to us that we're killing ourselves, is, is simply working at, you know, at, at cross purposes to what we could be if we could be as healthy as we can be, realizing, you know, the constraints. I mean, that's, that's what we've done. We've We've chosen a profession of considerable constraints, and um, th- I think that would serve us. That would serve us well. You mentioned that access to therapy is is really important. What do you think the veterinary industry's role is in ensuring that veterinary professionals, not just veterinarians but staff, have have access to therapy? Meaning. Um, through like an employee an employee assistance program or providing insurance benefits or or things like that do do you think that this is a role that the industry needs to take on or do you think that it's more an individual responsibility or or is it sort of a shared 
Well, uh, I, I, I think it has to be a shared responsibility. You know, I think that EAP programs are great, but they usually give only six sessions, and, and that's really not enough. I mean, that would be for some type of crisis counseling, some type of acute, you know, uh, psychotherapy. Most of the people I see, I see four years. That doesn't mean the therapy has to last for years, but it's not a six, it's not a six week one and done kind of treatment. I think the problem is there is a mix-up of uh, well-being, wellness, and mental health, and and they're really not the same thing. I have uh, an acquaintance who's a physician at a, a local university hospital here in Chicago, and you know he says that the the bean counters at his institution they think that wellness is uh, pizza on Fridays and, you know, bagels and cream cheese on Wednesdays. And I think for a lot of us, that's how we see, that's how we see wellness. You know, we see, um, you know, nutrition days or, um, you know, group exercise days or, you know, someone brings donuts. And, And that's not to say that that doesn't have a place, but for the amount of hurt that I think we have in this profession and people really being stymied in, in, you know, in many instances by significant depression and anxiety. I think we just have to normalize it. It's still, it still has to be the individual's decision. But if it's not encouraged, if, uh, for example, a team meeting isn't held to say, you know, this is, these are parts of our benefit package. I think I think all of this would go a, a very long way. What I'll say is in the Southeast, where I'm at, I have not really seen any employee assistance programs ever. JJ, have you? I think HVSC is starting to. That's okay. the one that I've heard of. Okay, that's good. Um, but mm-hmm. for the majority of my career, it, you know, that has not really been a reality, at least I can say for most of the veterinary professionals and and workers in Alabama. In fact, when I got into the uh, counseling program and they were talking about EAPs, EAPs, I finally just had to raise my hand and say, I don't know what that is. Like, just tell (laughs) tell me what that is. I don't know what that is. And I think EAPs are fantastic. And I, I would love to see that the veterinary industry embracing them. But you're absolutely right. A lot of them don't cover, you know, comprehensive mental health care. They're more like a emergency uh, handle, you know, to pull. Right. And and I think also, you know, the state organizations need to move in a very different direction. You know, much of much of the work of the state VMAs um, is with impaired veterinarians, so uh, professionals with substance abuse issues. I'm currently on a task force uh, with the state of Wisconsin VMA, and they're doing a phenomenal job uh, of trying to really zero in on how they can help their members, um, specifically with mental health issues. And and actually, uh, the Wisconsin program is it's it's one of the most I think thoughtful programs as far as you know meeting mental health needs. But this has to be. This has to be, you know, across all 50 states. And yeah. I think, you know, insurance has to has to be able to cover, you know, a, a benefit like this. Yeah. It, and you have to have a job that offers it. Right. <laughs> at all. <laughs> right. Right. Because <laughs> a, a lot of veterinary jobs don't offer insurance. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just crazy to me, but the, but a lot of them don't. Yeah. Speaking of, uh, I mean, as a, because I'm a technician, so it's definitely an issue for, to find medical insurance in some cases. Having said that, do you feel like every veterinary professional should see a therapist? And that should that be included? I don't think every veterinary clinician needs to see a therapist at all times, but I, I have a, I have a difficult time trying to think of someone who could care and work as hard as veterinarians do, who from time to time wouldn't benefit 
by processing what they're feeling and thinking with someone else. You know, I think that an issue that many veterinarians have is that uh, a lot of them had to be self-sufficient at a very early age. And I've talked to a number of colleagues over the years, and I'm really struck by their stories. Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes it'll include um, some form of abuse, some form of neglect, substance abuse in the house, loss of one or both parents, loss of a sibling. I mean, these huge childhood traumas. And, um, you know, for, for a variety of reasons, they're drawn to this profession where it's kind of like they're steeped in, in loss and grief. And I think if, if we don't have the opportunity to process our own, you know, we're going to be mightily triggered, mightily triggered. I found it so interesting that, that it's been your experience that a lot of veterinarians have trauma history because it's been my experience too, not just veterinarians, but veterinary staff. I 100% agree that there's something about childhood trauma that draws people to this field. I, w- I don't know if that's been studied, but I would love to look at that at some point. There's, there's, been, there's been an increasing amount of work and research on adverse childhood events, ACEs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there does seem to be, I think, and I, I, don't have, I don't have any numbers to quote on you, you know, for you, but it, it seems that, you know, high ACEs do propel people, you know, into the helping professions. And I think, you know, veterinary medicine, I mean, for, for a lot of kids who have access to companion animals and are suffering, that animal provides, has provided, provided a, an unconditional love and acceptance that they maybe weren't getting in the home. You know, and that's, that's a pretty simplistic, I think, way of looking at things, but I think it holds true. Um, several years ago at the mindfulness retreat, we went around the room and we talked about why we entered veterinary medicine. And nearly to a person, there was a story of um, a childhood pet who was either who either died because of lack of care, uh, parent couldn't afford it, parent didn't want to give give the pet care. So that was that was one that was one series of stories. The other series of stories was a an ill childhood pet, and then the kindly veterinarian came in and made the pet better. And so, you know, in the first in the first scenarios, it's it's the it's the reparation, it's the restitution, right? And in the second set of stories, it is an identification with the provider. You know, that's what I want to do, and. And so if you're, if you're not aware of what your own story is, you know, how did I get here? When we're confronted with the childhood, the, you know, the kid with the pet and the parent is, you know, not keen on going forward with thousands of dollars of care. If we don't know why we're being, why we're really being drawn into it, you know, what's triggering us, we can, we can sometimes go to a darker place. So what advice do you have for anyone who's considering a career in veterinary medicine? I would say to anyone considering a career, not to be afraid. Um, and this is, a, this is a particularly ripe question for me, because within the last several months, I have actually had two people come up to me and say they were concerned about their, cons- their desire to be a veterinarian because of the mental health issues in the profession. And, you know, I had to, I had to tell them that this is not about contagiousness. You know, it's not, it's not like there's contagion in the profession that if you come in here, you're going to come out, you know, depressed and anxious and and suicidal. I, I told them, you know, be very, very clear as to why you're, why you're entering this profession, which I still think is one of the most phenomenal ways to to live a meaningful life. I mean it checks so many boxes. And to be clear and to be clear about yourself, you know, as a as a provider and to accept limitations because this is not a, this is not a profession without limitations. You know, as much as we have contempt I think sometimes for the public 
who thinks that all we do is play with puppies and kittens all day, I, I think that some of us have, have sipped that same Kool-Aid. And we believe, you know, that it's going to be kind of a happy thing and clients are going to come and they're going to be incredibly validating of our skills and they're going to be forever grateful and they're going to love us. And that's, that's not a realistic expectation. We are going to lose patients despite our best efforts. We are going to lose patients because we made the wrong diagnosis. We are going to lose patients because the patient didn't read the book. We are going to lose patients because the client cannot give the medication, does not want to pursue treatment, doesn't have the money. And, and if, we're not, if we're not clear about that, it's going to be a very messy way to walk through the world. I think you said so many important things right there. The, the first is the expectation that case outcomes won't always be good because I literally have heard veterinary students, other veterinarians, you know, most of the time they're on the younger side, say, if I ever lost a patient, I don't know what I would do. And I always say, you're going to lose a patient. You, it will happen. You know, there's no if about it. If I ever lose a patient, it's going to happen for sure. You're also going to make mistakes in the treatment of patients. There's no, you know, you you try your best to avoid it, but it will ultimately happen if your career is long enough. Well, you know, what you're what you're talking about is I think a fundamental difference between physicians and veterinarians. In in my working with physicians, both as psychotherapy patients and from my time, my 18 months at two hospitals, they have a very different way of seeing their work. I, you know, and, and this is a broad brush, and of course, you know, many of them are, are perfectionists for whom uh, the loss of a patient is, is catastrophic, right? Yeah. But I see, I see, I see a physician now um, who is in a very, very emotionally messy uh, specialization. And many of his patients, he cannot save. And, you know, he said to me just the other day, he said, you know, I used to think coming out of fellowship that I had to have a 10 out of 10 every day. So if I saw 10 patients, 10 patients, I had a cure, 10 patients, I had to send on their way feeling really good. And he said, now I'm 50 years old. If I, if I can, if I can make it for two patients out of those 10, I think I've done a good job. And, and you know, I think over time, we, we get to the realization that it's not just about us and our skills. You know, if that was enough, all you have to do is really be good at this. And then, you know, no one dies. And that's a very unrealistic um, way of looking at the work. The other thing that your answer to that question sort of brought up for me is this this idea, the, the importance of being able to cope with the pet owner's reaction when bad things happen. Sort of even going back to, you know, trying to control how, how veterinary clients behave. I have encountered this personally, and then I see this a lot. There seems to be this limited ability to, to tolerate anger and grief being manifested, you know, towards you, like direct a, a, at you. And yet there's no way to stop that from happening because when people are grieving, you can't really, you know, sit down and, and like rationalize with them all the little things that you did. I think it's really important for veterinarians and veterinary professionals as a whole to understand that, that they are going to have a lot of strong quote, negative emotions sort of directed at them. And no, that's not always a fair thing, um, but it is the reality. And so I think learning how to cope with and being okay with other people's emotions and not automatically assuming that says something about you as a person uh, is really important. And it's a journey that I'm still on. Well, you know, that's, that's really an excellent point. We are, you know, for for want of, of a better phrase, we as veterinarians are involved in a, in a medicine of loss. Most of our patients will not survive us. Most patients will die before the clients. 
and I think it's important to understand, you know, what gets what gets aroused in us with seeing people in highly emotional states. And in particularly if, you know, if one grows up in a chaotic household or one grows up in an alcoholic household or one grows up in a household where there were no emotions, you know, I mean, they can, they can be all over the place. Our ability to tolerate the negative emotions of others is severely limited, severely limited. And if, you know, this goes back to childhood and adolescence too, if we were the ones who had to keep things status quo, as is often the case with one person in an alcoholic household, that's a, that's a very, very difficult, you know, role for anyone for anyone to assume. Anger is, is really predicated on loss. So when we lose something, we're angry. When that anger is unprocessed, it leads to rage. When the rage is unprocessed, it leads to revenge. And, and so we need to always, when someone is angry, and this, you know, it takes time to develop this, this, this thinking, but it's, it's available to all of us, is, you know, to ask what's being lost in the process. And oftentimes it's not just the loss of the physical body, right? But, you know, the shame, the um, self, you know, incrimination, the remorse, the regret, all that is rolled into one. So if you happen to grow up in a situation where you felt that you had to constantly manage others' emotions or suppress your own, then having a an interaction with a client who is angry with you might be a very activating feeling. It might bring up a lot of those childhood Absolutely. experiences. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. It's, it's activating. It's, it's hyper arousing. And, you know, that's where, that's where learning where these reactions come from can be, can be very, very helpful. And that's a therapy thing. Like, and not like necessarily a wellness uh, meditation type thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, mindfulness meditation can help us tolerate what we're feeling. Um, but that also, you know, includes practicing mindfulness meditation every day, which is the big, you know, big drawback. But we need to be able to, you know, to tolerate levels of distress. And, and I want to underscore, you know, not tolerate abuse, but tolerate right. distress. And to tolerate the distress of another so that someone's anxiety doesn't increase our anxiety. And so we get, you know, we get kind of in that, you know, that messy loss of boundary where we're, where it's like emotional contagion. I talk about emotional contagion, you know, quite a bit. And, and I think that's what, that's what can get us into trouble where, you know, we're emotionally charged, client is emotionally charged. And, you know, then, then we're both kind of in it with both feet jumping into the deep end of the pool. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back for just a second and highlight what you just said about distress tolerance, how important it is, but also recognizing that distress tolerant, like by, by saying you need to get better at distress tolerance, we're not saying you need to get better at tolerating abuse. I think that's never. a super important distinction. Never, 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 never tolerate abuse. No, but dealing with emotions that are uncomfortable and sitting with them—that's what we mean by distress tolerance. Right, and sitting and sitting with our reactions to them, you know, yeah, and not letting them, you know, carry throughout the day, so that so that you don't come home and. I'm not advocating this. So, you know, boss, the boss yells at you, you go home and you kick your dog. That's not what we want. You know, we want, we want the boss's conversation to just stay there and not, you know, not follow us. Absolutely. I know this is something that I kind of felt just because I got into the field when I was fairly young, but it's, I've seen it happen with other people as well, is they almost see support staffs kind of sees veterinarians and or managers almost as like a, parent figure mm -hmm. and they see like the vet office because you spend a lot of time there it's like your family mm -hmm. and how do you avoid that and also the um issue where like if they get upset with you or something you feel like you're getting reprimanded by a family member or disappointing a family member if you like 
want to change jobs or that sort of thing. That's kind of a, I don't know, it's kind of tricky. God, JJ, that's well, a I great think, question. Know, right. I think, I think our personal relationships, family of origin, our families that we came from certainly can play out in the workplace. And oftentimes, because veterinary clinics are small um, institutions, they can feel like small families, right? And, mm-hmm. and that, you, you absolutely underscored the work. If you don't know why you tolerate a shaming manager and you stay in a job that makes you miserable, I think that's, I think that's absolutely what might be a good catalyst for getting you into therapy. And wondering, you know, where else in my life have I tolerated shaming and have been afraid to abandon it? And it's it's not it's not unusual that people in these in these small hospitals and clinics have have certain roles, you know, the you know the understanding, you know, the understanding but distant father, you know, the scatterbrained, you know. But loving mother, you know, the uh, shaming older sibling. And, and if you're not aware of the dynamics and the, the group isn't aware of the dynamics, it's going to play out again and again and again. You know, uh, Freud, Freud was right about, you know, about many things. But one of, the, one of the things that has always stuck with me is, you know, he said, patterns will persist until we understand the antecedents and process them figure out where they came from. And so, you know, if we have a pattern of finding ourselves in what are called toxic environments, we need to figure out what draws us there. And it's, it's not the money. It's not increased responsibilities. That's not why we're drawn to these, these very similar um, environments. But we could be used to them. Mm. Wow. Mm-hmm. The last thing that I'd like to talk about is a little bit of a a left turn from where we have been. (laughs) So bear with me. But I wanted to talk a little bit about your experience with career change or what I'll call career transition, Mm -hmm. because at no point you didn't stop becoming a veterinarian. You just adjusted course in a Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. What was your experience like and what do you think are the barriers to this sort of change that that most of us experience, and how can we overcome those barriers to grow? You know, we have to see career transition for for most of us as a as a privilege, right? I mean, there are there are certain people who cannot who cannot change careers for for whatever reason. I think we have to be very clear as to what the next step is going to do for us, what we what we hope will come out of it, and. You know, a lot of people are are very are are afraid. You know, I have uh, I, I have a number of of psychotherapy patients who are an, who are attorneys. They don't particularly like being attorneys, but they're very very afraid. You know, they have the golden handcuffs. They're making a lot of money. Their hours are somewhat reasonable. They have good perks, and and they're afraid to leave. So. I would I would always stress that any career transition needs to be thoughtful. We need to be very realistic as to what we're going to accomplish with that career change. And we have to listen to ourselves, you know, is it a situation that isn't working now? I'm I'm contacted not infrequently by veterinarians who've decided that they want to be mental health providers. Really? And you know, it it makes a lot of sense to some people because, you know, we deal with lots of emotional issues, you know, but when I try to, when I try to ferret it out a little bit and say, well, you know, have you had your own psychotherapy? Have you, have you thought about what you might want to do with this? Because as you know, you know, it's a, it's a, it's four to five years before there's Mm -hmm. any type of, of individual practice that, that really can be done. And that can be off-putting. So I think, you know, with everything, we need to have clarity of intention. We need to be thoughtful in our approach. We have to understand if it's a reaction to something that is temporary or this is really something that is calling to us. And 
ultimately what we'd like to do with it. Sort of exploring why the career transition is desired, Mm -hmm. how you're feeling about it and, you know, making sure that you understand all of the all of the options that you have before you make a firm decision. Right, right. You know, to do due diligence, because wherever you go, there you are. And so it's, it's a, you know, it's a nice, it's a nice fantasy to think that changing a job or changing a residence or changing a career is going to make us happier. I mean, at times it does. But the fact of the matter is you're still bringing whoever you are into that next chapter. Well, as we close out our episode today, Dr. Gaspar, is there anything else that that you'd like the listeners to know about mental health in veterinary medicine? Well, I think I'd like to talk to my colleagues directly and to those who work with them and those who love them. And I'd like them to know that no one has to suffer, no one has to feel alone or isolated, and we, we all deserve to be happy. And I think um, we can be happy. It may take paths that seem daunting to us or seem to be paths that we're a little afraid of going down. But I would encourage that first step. You know, it takes courage. And there's a difference between courage and bravery. Bravery is when we're just not fearful. We just, we just go forward. Courage is to know that we are afraid and we still go forward nonetheless. And in my working with veterinarians, I have found them and their staffs to be very courageous people. So I would, I would hope that our conversation has given some food for thought, and um, I wish everyone to be well. Dr. Gaspar, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it, and I think this is going to be a really fantastic and informative episode for everyone. Really mm-hmm. excited about Thank this you one. so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. If you have stories, cases, questions, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram, and it's at introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye.